0: All right, so this is Stale Bubblegum. Um, I am with an all-star, an immortal World Series champ, uh, the receiver of the bitch slap heard around the world, Um, (laughs) um, Gold Glover, musician extraordinaire,
1: Bronson Arroyo. What's up, brother? I'm doing good, man. What's going on? Is that okay for an intro? Hey, anything's good for me. I'm the type of guy who likes to be like Rage Against the Machine in the old days. Just walk on the stage and say hi, we're Rage Against the Machine from Los Angeles, California and start playing, right? It's like, <laughs> uh, no, no intro for me is just fine. So
0: listen, man, I I obviously I want to cover like a lot of stuff, but you sent me the album and uh, you kind of made a lot of people who, who follow you as a musician wait a little bit. So... Why was now the right time to release
1: um, new music? Well, you know, when I, when I did the cover in the bases album, that was actually kind of a surprise to myself. I mean, we had won the world series in 2004 that off season we were taking, you know, I was taking the trophy to different state houses. You know, you were doing autograph sessions four and five hours at a clip. I mean, it was just pandemonium in a lot of ways, just people throwing opportunities at you constantly. And you know, in the midst of that, kind of like coming off of that between the end of the season and spring training, I'd gotten a call, hey, would you like to make an album? Because we hear or we read in the paper that you're like a human jukebox inside the locker room. It was something I think that Millar had said. And, you know, so that that was actually at the time I said, hey, there's no way I can write original music. I wasn't even seasoned enough to do that, first of all. And And I didn't have the time. So he said, why don't you just pick, you know, some songs that you really have dug over, you know, your childhood or whatever, and let's record those with some of the best musicians that ever walked the earth. And so that's what became covering the bases. There had never really been uh, an intention to to write original music, um, or at least there wasn't like a time that I said, hey, I would love to write original music by this time, right? Along the way, playing music with an acoustic guitar, whether it was at an elementary school or playing shows you know, I, I never felt comfortable telling my own story. And part of it was that the music I really love that you hear on the Covering the Bases album is a lot of that 90s rock. It's a lot of that grunge from Stone Temple Pilots, you know, from Nirvana, from Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, a lot of dark themes. And I was a guy who was such an optimist, right? i had grown up in this weight room with a father who made me believe that the glass was half full under all circumstances, right? And so in 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 that thinking i was having a hard time rationalizing how i was going to write music for myself and be happy with it and so i would write kids songs every now and again i'd go to an elementary school we would write something the night before just so the kids could pay attention to you right but um i think as i was winding down my career i'd been talking for 15 years with the guys on this record um you know i'd known them since 2004 back in the, in the new england days and we had always been friends ever since and played music ever since i'd always said let's let's write a record and I always said that, but it was kind of like a joke in a way. You know, I wasn't really sure how we're going to do it or when we would do it. But as I was finishing up and knew that I was not going to be playing baseball anymore, I felt like I needed something to kind of grind against a little bit. I felt like I needed something to lean into. And, you know, I've seen so many guys play the game and you're so busy at the ballpark and you have the nerves and everything that comes along with being a major league baseball player. And then it goes to just full stop where you're just dropping your kids off to school and picking them up every day. And I've seen guys struggle with that on a mental level, you know, just feeling like they went from, you know, being on a roller coaster to a dead stop. And so for me, I was thinking, you know, let's keep the music going. It makes me feel good. I like playing live shows. And that's was kind of the process that got me going in the right direction to write this record.
0: And how long, um, I guess it's a two-parter, like how long have you lived with these songs, uh, for, and did the pandemic have anything to do with like, you know, you're locked in, you're kind of forced to like, um, be inside and um, do nothing but like kind of Netflix and
1: whatever. Um, Were you kind of forced to like sit at home and like write some stuff? Well, I started the process in 2018. So I retire in 2017. I'm 40 years old. You know, I don't really have anything to do for the first time in my life as far as like taking care of myself. Right. The meat, potatoes of my whole career has been like, how much food are you eating? When are you working out? And how are you going to play catch? Right. So even like on vacations, you're going snow skiing. It's like, how am I going to get this long toss in? So you're standing in a parking lot with ice on it, playing catch with one of your buddies who can barely catch your fastball, you know, to try to keep your arm in shape. And I've been doing that for years. And this is the first time that I'm kind of just free. So I thought, you know, let me let me try and write a few songs and see what will happen here. And what I did was I I a buddy named uh, Elliot Sloan from Blessed Union of Souls, lead singer that lives in Cincinnati. We've known each other for years. And also a kid named Chris Lambert in town. I started going and just experimenting with a little bit of demos and see if I could if I could create a song. And it, I, that went on for a little while, and I could never still couldn't finish songs. And then finally, I went out to Los Angeles and got some riffs from the guys in the band out of their old phones. They pulled out their iPhones from like 2007, and oh, oh here, here's one. Oh yeah, I remember this little riff I came up with in a hotel room, and you know, in Pasadena. And uh, why don't you try this one? And so I took those back. And once I finished the first one, it became kind of like a a project in a way. It became a little addictive. It was like I would go to Elliot's house and in four hours I would come back with a demo, a song that I'd sang, you know, I only sang it right after we wrote it one time and weren't even sure how to sing it, but, you know, just get it good enough to take home with you. And um, that became something that started feeling really good. And so it's, this process started in 2018. It took me about, I would say it took... meat and potatoes of about a year and a half to write 24 songs. So I took some songs from the guys in LA. I wrote some myself. I I wrote all the lyrics with Elliot and Chris pretty much. Uh, One song called Hardway was written by, um, with a kid named Joe Jordan, who's a country, uh, actually writer around here in Cincinnati as well. And um, I started putting those together. So as I was putting those together, I was then flying back out to L.A. And, and kind of showing them to the band and being like, hey, what do you think? Are, the, are these even good enough? Would you guys to get in the studio with me and record them? And they they were pleasantly surprised by that first time I dropped in with about 10 to 12 songs. And they were like, wow, you've been putting in some work. Right. And just kind of getting the energy going in the right direction and getting over that hump made them realize, hey, this is a possibility. So I went back and I finished up the last you know half of them had 24 songs and kind of that was what we we're going to whittle down to figure out what we would record and what would actually make the album. Um, so, but once we started recording the record, COVID put a stop right in the middle of it. I would say we were, the meat and potatoes of the songs were recorded, but there was no backup vocals, no cellos, no pianos, no no lead guitar on some of them. Nothing was really dialed in, but the meat and potatoes of the songs were in the computer in, uh, in uh, Los Angeles. And then COVID hits, and as you know, California is, you know, one of the most conservative states and everybody was just totally locked down. So I didn't know what was going to happen. I was just sitting on these songs for a long time Mm. and uh, just waiting to see what would happen. What were you doing during COVID? How did you stay sane? My routine wasn't messed up that much because I I love golf and I love the snow ski a little bit. So I found that in the beginning of the pandemic, nobody was going anywhere. So I would go out to the golf course. And it was a little chilly. It was still like March, right? So it was like cool out and right. nobody was really wanting to play golf in 40 degree weather. So I go out by myself and I was finishing around the golf in two hours and I was like, this is beautiful. There's no one here. But then really quickly everyone started figuring out like golf is the thing to do during the <laughs> pandemic. And then the golf course got completely packed, but I was doing that working out down in my basement, just, um, you know, riding a bike, getting some workouts in and just spending a lot of time with my wife really. And it was the first time that she didn't have to, Asking me where I was going and why I was flying somewhere and kind of gave, you know, it was nice to have some really down home time where nobody could actually ask of your time. You can't come to this charity event. You know, can you come do X, Y and Z for me? So it was a little bit of a reprieve and felt nice for a while.
0: So so now that the record, by the way, when is the record coming out?
1: The record's coming out on February 17th. OK. Um, so- and the album is, is called Some Might Say. And the, and the band we finally came up with a band name it's been a while We're trying to nail it down they just kept saying bronson arroyo but they really wanted the band to be recognized because this is a group of guys i've been with for 15 years this is not these are friends these are not like hired guns so it's it's called bronson arroyo and the oh four right and part of that part of that rep- represents when we met it obviously represents the world series championship but it also represents four guys playing behind me and um you know, it's kind of cool. And and the name of the album is Some Might Say, which is the third song on the record. And it's not that the song is so significant, but it felt like, um, felt like the word Some Might Say uh, was kind of like, hey, some might say, damn, that's a pretty good record. Some might say, you know, that's just a baseball player trying to do something he has no business doing, right? Like some might say a lot of things. and So I thought it was kind of cool. Well, I think like, you know, some might
0: say also like, wow, I didn't know he could like, put out a really good record like that. And and that's sure. not even Smoke, like, because um, I think the the first time, no, I know the first time I interviewed you was for that cover uh, album. And I remember thinking, like, this is really, by the way, like, 90s grunge is my wheelhouse. Like, that's, I think that's like the, the golden age of rock, at least for me anyway. Like, there's right. just, I, I mean, during the pandemic, all I was playing really was uh, Alice in Chains Unplugged um and like nutshell over and over and over again which by the way i think that probably sums up where my mental state was during (laughs) during covid (laughs) um but i remember thinking like wow he's really good and then there was that that lull um and listening to the new album i don't i don't know if you notice it or maybe it's just just me like i feel like your voice has gotten a little deeper too like have you noticed that at all or no
1: no i don't know deeper but i i you know you're stronger I, on, I don't know i've been working on my craft you know it's like yeah. like you asked back when i did covering the basses i literally was as green as you could possibly get i yeah. was a guy who barely had even played an open mic night with an acoustic guitar Right. and i make the cover in the basses record and can, you know pull it off but i go back and listen to those songs and I'm i'm not happy with the way that they sound now i mean musically i am but not not my vocal Um, You know, I've been working on that for a long time and, and the space between these two albums, I really needed that maturation process to play live shows here in Cincinnati with my band here playing all these cover songs to really kind of like hone the craft. And I'm still uncovering layers of myself, right? I mean, stage presence, how far are you away from the microphone? What kind of equipment are you using? You know, everything about that goes on on a stage when you see a really wonderful show, it's not easy to pull off. And so all these things have happened over time. And I've been working on my vocals and I'm working on how is it I can save my voice, but also present something that sounds good, right? Because if you ask a guy, even like Eddie Vedder, you know, when... If you ask him how he sang those sets back in 92, he'll tell you like if I was only doing 12 songs back then. And if I tried to sing three hours like that now, there's no way I could pull it off. Right. Right. He had to figure out that he's got to be a little bit more breathy. You've got to find other places in your range in order to sing these songs to save yourself a little bit. So I've been working on all of that coming down to the basement and grinding by myself with an acoustic guitar. And so that's what you're hearing is a little bit different vocal than I had in the past because I'm just matured over the years and trying to get better.
0: Yeah, I think I think I'm probably hearing the miles like you know just just life, right? Like I think that's probably what I'm hearing. Um also just what I'm noticing there is like kind of a country edge to it. There there is that grunge you you hear the grunge, you hear the rock, but there is kind of like the country um elements too. Like if you had to describe your sound, how how would you
1: do that without labeling and pigeonhole yourself? Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I think well, first, when I when I recorded when I wrote the songs, you yeah. know, there was no intention of what they would sound like. There was no intention of I want this to sound like a rock song. You know, if you if you listen to Never Let You Go, it's obviously like a a, a folky kind of tune. Um, if you hear Higher Ground, you can hear almost some '80s vibes in that in that lead yeah. in the beginning. There, there's different. You know, you hear a little bit of Tom Petty on the record. You can obviously hear some influence of Eddie Vedder in me in the way I'm singing some of the songs, right. but. You know, these songs were not written with an idea of what they would sound like because Bronson and Roy didn't have a sound prior to this. Right. And so I just wrote the best songs I could with the best lyrics I could that felt the best at the time. And then I let the band take those to the next level and bring that to the table. I think, you know, the two guitar players, Jamie Aronson, who plays on the record, who's Miley Cyrus's guitar player and American Hi-Fi was his original band out of college. Right. Um, Him and my buddy Clint Walsh who played in Gnarls Barkley and a bunch of different other bands along the way. Those two guys really brought their own flavor to the record. And mainly Clint wrote a lot of those backup vocals. And I wanted, I wanted the band to have to sing three-part harmony live and see if they could pull that off. Because for one, you don't see a lot of bands do that. And two, sometimes, you know, you get tired of hearing yourself just sing alone. It's nice to have someone singing along with you. So so when I wrote the songs, I just kind of left it open-ended. And I wanted to see what it would turn into. And what it turned into, um, if you ask what I think it sounds like, I think it sounds like straight down the pipe Americana rock and roll with a sprinkle of, of a little country and a sprinkle of a little folk in there. You know, that's yeah. um, where I, I feel that it lands. I, I wasn't thinking alternative. There's probably some, you know, if you listen to Guerrilla Warfare, you probably think, you know that's an alternative song but um like i said i was just trying to put out the best product i could without really trying to squeeze it into some sort of box cuz to be honest um who i am as a person is not one dimensional you know it's I, i'm kind of a mixed bag and to be honest you know there's some days that i want to listen to never let you go cuz it's so pretty and soft and then there's other days you're just irritated and i want to listen to full moon fever right so it's it's kind of like i di- i didn't want to have to be just one thing
0: so Talk to me about Innings Fest a little bit. And then I just kind of want to jump into baseball a little bit and random other shit. But like, um I really think the concept's cool. I know you're just playing it, but I just want to hear like what, you know, it why you're playing it is obvious, but I want to hear, you know, your involvement about it. Obviously, I I can't picture Randy Johnson, you know, rapping or anything. I know that I know what it is specifically. Uh Green Day's sure. playing, Eddie Vedder's playing there's obviously a baseball element you're you're performing but i know that there's
1: also a cool baseball element yeah absolutely you know i i've everything that i do in a lot a lot of ways is always on a personal level you know i don't i don't do i don't do a lot of things that i that i don't have some sort of connection to the people that put it on usually and tim sweetwood puts on innings fest i met him last year while i was working innings fest as a baseball player i was doing autographs i was taking pictures with people we're talking about pitching you know hanging out with guys like ozzy smith my childhood hero and uh and and also i love the lumineers so i got to see the lumineers in tampa last year and watch a great set and i realized that this was a real music festival right i mean it's a music festival with baseball on the side it's not baseball and music on the side it's the other way around and when i realized that i was talking to tim and i was in the midst of making this album and he said, would you want to play it next year? And I said, sure, I would love to. I just, you know, I didn't even ask the guys in the band. I just said, yeah, I would love to, you know. Yeah. And um, it's it's just a perfect fit for me, obviously, from where I come from and now trying to play some music. And, you know, I, I really wanted to, this band to to at least perform a few times on some larger stages or near some larger stages in order to just get a little bit of recognition of the fact that I could actually pull this thing off, that the band sounds like the record, right, that we can perform this live, and, um, you know, authenticity is what I've I've always been about. And, you know, for people to, to show up and, and see it with their own eyes and say, hey, that's, that's pretty good for a guy who, who played 22 seasons of baseball. Right? Um, right. That's what I was looking for, really. I don't know where else we're going to be able to take the band because. Obviously, Miley has a touring schedule. My drummer plays with Melissa Etheridge, and she likes to do about 100 shows a year. So there is a little bit of sticking point there. But I, I thought that this would be a really good opportunity before their schedules got too busy to play something that really fit the bill for the guys.
0: So what happens? I mean, you you brought up touring. Like, what happens with you? You know, you, you perform at the fest. I know you played Boston last week. Um, what happens if you really get the itch and you want and you really want to tour regularly?
1: Yeah. If, you know, if, if it makes sense, if it makes sense monetarily, you know, I mean, that's the one thing that's kind of always up in the air. It's like, I'll play music for free, but I probably won't pay to play music. Right. So it's like, you know, I don't need to make money from it, but other people do that are usually playing with me. Right. So there's that element of trying to make sure that people are getting paid. Uh, but, but if an opportunity came up and somebody said, Hey, you know, we've got a band going out for these many dates, would you want to go out 25 times throughout throughout the year if i could get the guys together or at least three out of the four guys together and maybe have one substitute and maybe there's one guy rotating i i I wouldn't mind doing that at all you know it's i've got energy i can play shows all day you know um it's just a matter of does it kind of fit in everyone's life you know i don't i i think of music as a hobby i don't think of it as a job and because of that um you know we get to pick and choose what we do and you know i i don't have any aspirations of of I don't have aspirations of filling up an amphitheater with my music, um, you know, 15,000 people ever in my life. I just, You know, that 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 type of thing is is a bit of a lottery ticket in itself. Right. right? And mo- usually that happens to guys that are in their 20s. Right. It's the youth that really drives a machine. You don't get a bunch of guys in their mid 40s to make a record for the first time and really drive the machine to that level. But you know, that's not what I'm in music for. What I'm in music for is the same reason I sit in my basement and play for two hours a day is to kind of get this angst off my chest to give yourself goosebumps and those vibrations that you want to hear. You know, so I don't know what will happen. It's kind of an open ended book and we're going to we're going to find out, you know, worst case serious scenario for me is that I have a band here in Cincinnati that plays a lot of cover shows. We get to play 10, 12, 15 times a year, raise money for people pay the guys a decent amount and that kind of satiates me enough as a person to feel good about what I'm doing musically. If I get to do something with my own music that takes me other places that would just be icing on top of the cake. Where,
0: where are you at now? Like, you know, at this point in your life with baseball, cause I mean, we're, we're obviously in the off season. Like, I just want to ask you about like, what do you think about this off season? Cause it's been pretty crazy, but where are you at with baseball? Do you see like a return in any, any shape form? Like, you know, with I don't know coaching, announcing. I mean, obviously, uh, you're still a young guy. I mean, uh, I, I I saw like a hilarious tweet from uh, Josh Reddick where he's like, "Well, shit, I'll come back if they're giving these contracts out to everybody." <laughs> <laughs> right. He's like, he's like, yeah, "I'll I mean, I'll hit I'll hit two hundred strikeout two hundred times and could still land a five million dollar deal." But um, right. like, where are you at with baseball?
1: You know, I I, I find myself drifting you know a little further and further from the game as time goes on and not not because I don't love the game and not because I'm not interested it's partially because the guys that were in my era are all retiring right it's like you know everybody from a, obviously the era in front of me were gone by the time I was in my mid-30s. Right the Ken Griffey juniors of the world right the Jose Cansecos the Mark McGuire's the Barry Bonds right. and now now even the generation below me the Joey Vottos and the Jay Bruces of the world are are either out of the game or about to be out of the game. And so You've got a lot of turnover. Teams are younger and younger all the time. I mean, if you look at the Cincinnati Reds, I played with 18 guys on that roster just about three years ago. And now there's only one guy on that team I played with, which is Joey. Right. And so, you know, as 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 the players are unfamiliar, it becomes a little less interesting for me to really dig into the team. But but I'm still connected to the Reds in a way because I played there for nine years. I'm going to go into their Hall of Fame this July. Nice. And, Congrats. you know, it's I go – you know, I go down to the ballpark to see the clubhouse guys who've been there for 30, 40 years and hang out with those guys and play music sometimes in the clubhouse and say hi to the young kids and eat some food. And I watch most of the games for four or five innings, you know, on TV at home, but I don't, I don't have an itch at this point in my life to be inside the game. You know, it's very time consuming. And I, I juggle, I juggle a lot as it is, you know, I say yes to a lot of things. And I, I kind of, I kind of like it in a way, like I've never had kids of my own, right. but I, I I'll come give some love to everyone else's kid here and there, but I don't have one of my own. Is taking up all my time. And baseball is kind of one of those things that sucks everything out of you because it's like an 11 hour, 12 hour day to be at the park and really care about what's going on, especially as a coach. I mean, honestly, the coaches put in more time than the players do. Right. For sure. You know, now I pop on TV and I'll do radio and TV for the Reds once or twice a year, just, you know, because they asked me to, but as far as like being chained to someone's paycheck and having to show up, you know, at this point, I've got so many things I can fill. I'm so interested in everything in life. I mean, I could sit outside and just grow a garden and be happy with that <laughs> rather than going to the ballpark and talking and pitching, you know. But, but, um, I try to be a mixed bag and I try to, I try to do a little bit of everything, but I'm not going to be indebted, you know, to baseball like I was in the past.
0: It must be nice. Uh, you know, so, some players, you know, play for, I, I mean, there's two sides of it. You'll get like a, a Jeter who's played for one team. You know, I know you played for a couple, but I mean, to be just so beloved by in particular two two organizations must be pretty sweet, you know, between the Red Sox and the Reds. I mean, that must be amazing. Can you talk about that just a little bit, you know, between, you know, being in New England and being in Cincinnati? I mean, yeah. I mean, you had you had such killer years in Cincinnati and just I mean. Obviously, 2004 was amazing for the Sox, but you had an amazing year in 2005 with the Sox. So, like, talk to me a little bit about, you know, just being part of those two franchises.
1: Yeah, you know, I I feel I feel really, really fortunate. I mean, not only, you know, do I feel connected in a really deep level to both of those cities. You know, I got to end my career in Cincinnati with the Red Sox in town. They give me the 61 out of the out of the scoreboard from the Green Monster um you know i get to play a show where i play my favorite band pearl jams four or five songs at second base for the fans after the game you know it's just kind of like a real full circle moment and you know there's a lot of guys who've had better careers than me there's a lot of guys who have probably gone into the hall of fame that have bounced around from team to team and never had an opportunity to really make a place home right and Winning that World Series in Boston in in 04 and having that good season in 05 and being part of that loss in 03 kind of cemented me in a very short amount of time into that city. And then to have almost a decade in Cincinnati of being beloved by these fans, and I still feel the love in this city. It's why people still show up to music shows. A lot of times they want to get a baseball card signed or talk about how they saw me pitch in the past rather than listening to the music. But, you know, it's really nice to have that because, like I said, there's other guys. I mean, there's only a little over 1,000 people who've played 10 years in the big leagues, right? Go so ahead. for me to have pulled off nine of them in a city like this, be able to play here long enough to make it into to, to Reds Hall of Fame, you know, one of 90 guys, a- after the oldest team in the game, I could have never dreamt that up as a kid. You know, I I I, I thought for damn sure I was going to play in the big leagues um for a good amount of time but to say you're going to play on one team long enough to to make it into their hall of fame and also to you know win a world series championship that was as legendary as that one was you know I couldn't have scripted that any better and 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 I feel very fortunate to be able to go down to the ballpark in both places a lot of times and walk into the locker room and have people look at me like hey oh that's Bronson Roy man good to see him right and that doesn't happen all the time for athletes and it's 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 really really special I always
0: I always think of you as just so reliable, like just durable. You know, yeah, that's, or starting. Was, um and uh yeah. I mean that was I hope a, that you don't that have to shy hope. too far away. I, I hope you don't shy too far away from baseball, you know. Um but whatever, man. You're also a great musician, so whatever.
1: Yeah. I mean, I always baseball is always you know, when I say I'm drifting from it, it's more it's more about the fact that I don't personally know the players. Right. There's, yes. there's something to be said about I have something to add to the game when it comes to someone coming to me and say, hey, play catch with this kid and let me know what you think. give You know, I i, I do that throughout the year. People come to me with their 15 year olds and say, you know, let's let's have a game of catch. And, and, and I try to give them everything I've got in my bag to make somebody understand what is worth listening to and what is worth throwing away right. in order to be a good one pitcher um you know i i'm i say i'm drifting from the is a little bit because i was used to going to the ballpark and being able to jump on tv or walk in the locker room and know everybody boom boom, boom what's what's going on when you don't know anybody and they're kind of looking at you like who is that and then it's like oh that's a royal right when, when you feel that sometimes it can make you feel like you're the new kid at school right. and when you've played as long as i have and you still feel like the new kid at school sometimes it's a little more uncomfortable than you'd want it to be
0: yeah. but
1: as far as as far as like being interested in sharing how I pitched so far out of the box and how a guy who weighed 180 pounds pitched 2000 innings in 10 years and all those types of things. I mean, it's always beautiful to have those conversations with people. And, you know, when the organization asked me to come to spring training and stick around for a day and have a conversation with everybody from AA to AAA about what it's like to be a professional and what it takes to be reliable, like you said, to be consistent, to be a guy who's leaned on by an organization who doesn't necessarily have the greatest talent in the world, I love to share those stories because it isn't every day that you find a guy like myself who probably had a skill set that maybe a a major league scout would have said, you know, he's going to be a swing guy from the bullpen to a rotation and he's going to get you three or four years and that's probably going to be it for Bronson and Roy with a pretty good minor league career. You know, for for a guy who had that skill set to do what I did you know, means that there's something else going on here. And those those types of nuances that were going on inside my brain to play this chess match and to, to dial in minor details to make yourself better are always super interesting to me. And I, I love sharing that.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, just a couple more. Um, how sweet was it watching Dusty Baker win this year?
1: Oh, man, that was the greatest. You know, I've, I've been around Dusty for a long time. He was my manager in Cincinnati for for a big chunk of my career there. And and he is my favorite manager of all time, without question, personality-wise. I mean, just a mixed bag of the most eclectic, interesting guy you've ever met in your life who's hustling more for himself and for everybody else around him than I've ever seen. Um, You know, he called me the night before the World Series started out of the blue, you know, and he's a busy guy. He called me and I picked up the phone and I I was, you know, you always think, you know, when I left Dusty, he was about 70s, creeping on 75, let's say. And I thought, you know, maybe he's going to be slowing down. And man, that phone call was so beautiful to hear the same old zest in his voice. And he's like, no, nope, we're going to win this thing, Bronson. And this is how it's going to go down. And, you know, just being the same old Dusty Baker with the classic stories and bringing up old times that we've had together. I mean, I, I've never rooted for someone else to win a World Series as a manager as much as I was, you know, hoping that Dusty would get that. Because to be honest... Not only was his big league career really solid, his managerial career has been absolutely amazing and he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. And I think that was the punctuation that's going to put him over the top. And, uh, you know, no, no better, no better guy to it to happen to. I mean, he is a friend for life and and it's always a joy to be in his presence. You uh, did you talk to him after he won or no? No, I, you know what? I was just about to hit the stage in Cincinnati here at a place <laughs> called in the Madison Theater. And yeah. we were doing a 12 song Pearl Jam set on a 90s grunge night. And just they won the World Series one minute before we started the first song. And I turned on my camera and told the crowd to t- say hi to Dusty. And I said, congratulations. And I sent it to him. And uh, I had heard back from him, which I didn't expect to, because he's probably getting right. a million of those. Right. But uh, the conversation the, the day before the, the series started was, was absolutely beautiful. That, that's classic. You
0: know, the the reason I started this podcast is because I just I remember being like um, a little fat kid and playing baseball with my dad. And I always had like this, you know, the when you're walking to the batter's box. Uh, And I don't even think they did this in the 80s uh, when I was watching baseball of like a pump up song, you know, like, you know, uh, a song that, you know, entrance song kind kind of like wrestling, right? Like you're, you're walking in entrance theme. And I would always have like a song in my head and like, I'm pretending to be Daryl Strawberry or something like that. And I always, I, I think like music and pop culture, or whatever, and, and baseball, they just go hand in hand. And you being this you know, musician and stuff was, what was your like, you know, this is another wrestling, wrestling uh, tie-in for some reason, but like DDP had this self high five thing. What was like your self high five song like to get you pumped up? Was it one song all the time before you pitched um, or was it like, you know, a bunch of different things? Did you just like play like nineties, you know, grunge stuff every time or was it the same song all the time?
1: Yeah, no, for, for getting ready for a game, it was always, um, it was always the same stuff. I mean, you know, as, as, Time went on in my career. I started listening to the, the that early 90s stuff when I was 15. Yeah. By the time I got into baseball, you know, you realize that, you know, you pitch today, you got four days off, but in those four days, you're really working harder than the day you pitch in a game. And to get a squat workout in sometimes in your mid-30s and your back is aching and your knees hurt, you got to have something to kind of light your fire a little bit. Right. And for me, it was always going to be the music. And so it was, it was always the Pearl Jam 10 record, right? And I know they've got plenty of other records, yeah. but just the viciousness. Of once even flow alive, Jeremy Black, you know, why go? These songs were just had so much energy in them that I always had that playing. And it, and it was something that as people realized, you know, they would walk by the weight room and hear the same music, they knew who was in there working out. Yep. Right. And yep. and um that, that was always it. Now, now to, to actually play the day I would play, I really didn't listen to music a lot that day, but while I was getting stretched from the strength coach, who at the time was a guy named Matt Krause, he, um, we I would put on indifference, which is another Pearl Jam yeah. song, you know. And you, if you listen to that song, it's about basically walking through fire and make and making it out the other side. So it's yeah. just kind of like this slow, kind of groovy thing as I'm kind of getting prepared for the game and just giving you a little incentive to go out there. But while while I was on the mound, I, I generally didn't have a lot of music running through my head. You know, you were yeah. you were kind of so kind of keyed in on on thinking about strategy and what what does your body feel like today like how is my breaking ball is it snappy or is it kind of okay. is it a little sluggish or do i have that cutter today you know like what what do i have going on out here physically that a lot of times music wouldn't enter my mind because it could also work as a distraction
0: right i guess Absolutely. the day yeah. of yeah i can see indifference being really good you know um screaming your lungs out right till it
1: fills their yeah, room. Exactly. I can, I can yeah, see that. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and the way that song starts with the first two verses that are just very mellow as I'm getting stretched. And then, like you said, yeah. in the third verse, he's saying, I'll swallow poison until I grow immune. I, yeah. I'll scream my lungs out till it fills this room. So it's like, it was kind of ramping up, like, all right, here we go. I'm about to get on this field and get it going.
0: Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. All right, brother. Well, good luck with uh, with the album. It really is great. No smoke. It really is great. Good luck with
1: it. Yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate it. I've been I I try to say that I could be, you know, introspective or I could I could observe myself from outside myself and listen to something and say, you know, is it good enough? I I think if I would have put a record out, if put it this way, afterlife is the last song on the record. It's probably the only it's probably the only song on the record that I'm not happy with the chorus. Mm. But if the whole album felt like Afterlife, I wouldn't have put it out. You know? um i put that song on there because it was kind of a creepy cool kind of vibe at the end of at the end of a record sometimes a lot of albums are like that where they don't have their best song at the very end um but the rest of the album i really love the hooks and um i didn't know what it would turn out like but it, it has been a pleasant surprise to be good enough that i'm proud to put it out there and say hey take a listen to this because bronson roy wrote this stuff sounds great man well thanks all right man I appreciate you. As always. I hope the podcast goes good. All right, bro. Thanks. All right. We'll talk to you soon. All right, man.
0: I appreciate it.
1: Okay. Later.